We have all had moments of wishing we could win the lottery or inherit millions from a distant unknown relative, or maybe even a known distant relative. <laughs> and we fantasize that having wealth would make our problems go away. Well, William Randolph Hearst was a very wealthy newspaper publisher who had an incredible collection of art. And the Hearst Mansion, if any of you have been to see that, is really a testament to his, in, his insatiable desire for artistic treasures. And on one occasion, he learned of a painting that he was absolutely determined to acquire. And he sent his agent abroad to find the treasure. And after months of diligently searching and investigating, the agent reported that the treasure had been located. And Mr. Hearst was elated and asked where it had been found. And his agent reported that he already owned the masterpiece he was seeking. It was in one of his warehouses and had never been uncrated. <laughs> now, I think it's fair to say that we can draw a parallel from this story to our Christian lives. Ladies, because of what Jesus has done for us, we who are believers are wealthy beyond measure. We have vast storehouses of treasure to draw from. And somehow that does not get translated into our day-to-day -day lives, does it? So in writing this epistle, Paul wanted his readers to understand the true riches they have in Christ. And he knew that it's impossible to live out in your life what you don't understand. But he knew that once they grasped this truth and the wonder of being in Christ, their lives would never be the same and the same is true for us today. So in the chapter we studied this week, the Apostle Paul provides all the details of our astronomical wealth that belongs to believers in Christ. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins his letter, as was the custom, by identifying himself as the author. And he reminds them that he's an apostle by the will of God and he's thus speaking on behalf of the Lord. Now, the early Greek manuscripts don't contain the phrase at Ephesus, and that's just led scholars to conclude that this was a letter that went from church to church to church. And it was called Ephesians because they were the first group to receive it. Well, in this letter, Paul immediately begins, he breaks into praise to God. In verses 3 to 14, 202 words are all one long run-on sentence in the Greek. <laughs> He would have failed grammar, I guess. But once he gets warmed up, he keeps going and going and going with praise to God for all he's done for us. And you have the sense he can't contain himself. So it helped me to break this long sentence into three key themes. And they're election, redemption, and inheritance. And each member of the Trinity plays a role in providing these spiritual blessings for us. God the Father elects or chooses us. Jesus provides redemption through his blood, and the Holy Spirit seals us and guarantees that we will inherit everything God has promised. So here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul begins by praising God for who he is, and praise is what should flow from the lips of those who know they've been redeemed. God isn't just any old God or some vague cosmic force, but he's the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it's through Jesus that he's blessed us. There's no other source for all of these blessings apart from Christ. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved, and there's one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus. So every blessing we have comes through him. Paul says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing, 
Not some or a few, but every. And these blessings come through Christ via the Holy Spirit. And it's his job to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. And what the Holy Spirit does is make possible for us to receive everything that Jesus has accomplished for us. These are the things that make us rich. That's our treasure. And what follows in these verses is really an in-depth explanation of what these blessings are. So where are they realized? He says, in heavenly places. Paul uses this phrase five times in the book of Ephesians. It's one of its themes. In uh, chapter 1, verse 20, he tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, tells us that God made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones said it well when he said, what Paul is saying is that all we have and all we enjoy as Christians come from, comes from him and through him who is in the heavenly places. By the new birth and our regeneration, we are joined to the Lord Jesus and we become sharers and participators in his life. We are in Christ. And we are so bound to him by this mystical union that is whatever is true of him is true of us spiritually. As he is in the heavenly places, so are we. Well, Paul then begins to explain how all of these spiritual blessings become ours. What is it that leads to anyone becoming a Christian and experiencing all of these treasures? Well, Paul doesn't start by saying these blessings come because someone's believed in the Lord or accepted him. He doesn't start by mentioning the death and resurrection of Jesus, but what he does is he goes back into eternity, before the foundation of the world, and he starts with what has been done by God the Father. Verse 4 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Paul's teaching could not be clearer. Those who enjoy these spiritual blessings do so because they have been chosen by God. And the word chosen here is it's a reflexive verb. It means that God is picking out for himself. He's choosing for himself. And verse 6 tells us he did this to the praise of his glory. And so what that means is that when God chose those who would be the church, he did it for his own glory before he ever did it for their own good. Paul doesn't argue about this. He simply states it as fact. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says the same thing. We should always give thanks to you, to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. So the doctrine of election, of God choosing some for salvation, is one of the greatest Christian doctrines. And I have a handout that you can get afterwards that is the most fabulous thing I've ever read on election. It just rocked me for days. So make sure you get a copy of it on your way out. Um, okay, but as great as this doctrine is, election is something that's been controversial in the church for many years because the first question everyone asks is about man's free will. Doesn't man choose God? Well, Paul answers this in chapter 2, and you were dead in your trans trespasses and sins. Dead men cannot choose God, and in fact, don't, don't even want to choose God. Verses 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. God took dead men and gave them life, and he chose those people to whom he would give life. 
Salvation belongs entirely to God. We are chosen by God out of the good pleasure of his will in spite of ourselves, in spite of the fact that we were enemies and haters of God. Well, why does God choose some and not others? I don't know. Is God unfair in choosing some and not others? Absolutely not. And Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 9. There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. God was under no obligation to save anyone at all. And that he's chosen a single person, much less many more, is a marvelous mystery. Ladies, this should give us great assurance and security in our salvation because your salvation is not a matter of having enough faith or having sincere motives or believing hard enough, scrunch it up, just wishful thinking hard enough. Your salvation comes from the fact that God chose you. And our understanding of God's election or choice, that, that does not determine our salvation, but it is so important in terms of having assurance of your salvation and understanding your position in Christ. Every blessing that Paul mentions in the following verses originates in the heart of God who set his affection on you before he spoke the universe into existence. Well, Paul proceeds to tell us why God has chosen some to salvation, and that is so we would be, the purpose of it, holy and blameless before him. So in just this little short phrase, we have a synopsis of the entire gospel. God's purpose for his people is to undo, remove, and rectify completely the effects of sin and the fall of man. Well, as if being chosen by God to know him and being made alive so we can have fellowship with him were not staggering enough concepts, Paul reveals an even greater truth. Verse 5 says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So not only do we stand holy and blameless before God, we learn that God predestined this to happen. It means he determined beforehand. It's what he willed or wanted to have happen. So we now stand before him as his sons and daughters because in eternity past, God chose to adopt us. Now the Apostle Paul is the only New Testament writer to use the word adoption. and He borrowed the idea from Roman law because he was a Roman citizen. And under Roman law, adoption secured for the adopted child the name, the right to the name, the property of the person who had adopted him. It's a legal term that defines standing or status, rank, privilege, and position. And Paul's not content to tell us we've become children of God uh, just by the second birth. That's not enough. He wants us to realize where we stand and what our rank and privileges really are. We are members of God's family. What that means, ladies, is we're in the will. We're in the will. <laughs> it's a good will to be in. John Stott put it this way. This is so profound. Our adoption, listen carefully, is the highest expression of God's love and the highest privilege the gospel offers, higher even than justification. That justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. 
We need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. This free gift of acquittal and peace, won for us at the cost of Calvary, is wonderful enough. But it does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and views God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is a greater. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, God has not left us to guess what his fatherhood amounts to by drawing analogies from human fatherhood. He revealed the full meaning of this relationship once and for all through the Lord Jesus Christ, his own incarnate son. God intends for the lives of believers to be a reflection and reproduction of Jesus' own fellowship with himself. The kind of relationship God the Father has with Jesus is the kind of relationship he desires with us. And he does that by giving us the spirit of the Son of God himself. Paul states this truth in Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth, this, sent forth the spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying out the Father. Paul tells us that God predestined us to adoption according to the kind intention of his will, meaning that he was not moved to do all of this because of anything in us. Salvation is not a response on God's part to anything in man, because man by nature and being dead in sin does not desire salvation. Salvation belongs to our God. And he was moved by his own grace, mercy, and compassion. Why? Paul tells us the ultimate motive behind God's gift of salvation and adoption. It is to the praise of the glory of his grace. We saw that phrase several times. The greatest truth concerning salvation is that it is a revelation of the glory of God. That's the greatest truth about salvation. 2 Corinthians 4.6 For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God where in the face of Jesus Christ. When the Son of God came into this world above all else, he was revealing the glory of God. John 1.14, and we beheld his glory. Jesus perfectly revealed God's glory, and God in his infinite wisdom chose to display his glory and grace to the world by choosing redeeming and adopting sinners into his family. That's staggering. He freely bestowed all of this on us in the beloved. Now it's easy in this passage to skip by the word beloved. And when we hear that word beloved, we think back to Jesus' baptism with the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. We remember the transfiguration, the voice again from heaven came saying, this is my beloved son, beloved son. Every, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, every time the veil of heaven is drawn back a little and man is given some glimpse of the eternal glory through the sun, beloved is the term that is used. Jesus is the one whom God the Father has loved from all eternity. 
Now in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prayed that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you have loved me. And in this word, we glimpse the truth that those of us who are in Christ, those who are adopted as sons and daughters in the beloved, are loved by the Father in the same way that he loves the Son himself. This is the ultimate height of salvation because everything we have is in the beloved and we ourselves become the beloved of God. Paul's not done. After telling us in verses 3 through 6 about the work of the Father and purposing and planning our salvation, verses 7 to 12 tell us how this has been carried out in and through the Son. In him we have redemption through his blood. Redemption is a term that Paul's readers would have been very familiar with. It means deliverance or setting someone free through the payment of a ransom. And it was the term that was used about setting a slave free. This is the picture that's painted of our salvation. All of mankind is in a state of bondage as a result of sin. We're slaves. We cannot free ourselves. But Jesus said the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom, the redemption price for many. And Paul tells us the exact price that Jesus paid in order to redeem us. It was through his blood. Paul didn't say by his death, and the question is why? Well, in the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, the priests would place their hands on the head of the animal that was to be killed, and in doing so, they were transferring the people's guilt and sin to that animal. The animal was killed, the blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat, and God forgave. And this was a foretelling of what Christ did once and for all. Well, Peter tells us that we weren't redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And that is why Paul speaks about the blood of Christ and not simply about his death. The ransom price for your deliverance was the blood of the Son of God. Well, Paul tells us that not only do we have redemption through his blood, but that we have forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption means being freed from sin's power so it's no longer our ruler, whereas forgiveness means God wipes the slate clean and our sins no longer hang over us. Our sin was so horrendous and evil it took nothing less than the death and blood of the Son of God to make things right. So God's way of forgiveness is to give sin the punishment it deserves. He punished Jesus in our place. This forgiveness is final, and God has dealt with our sins in such a thorough manner that he's put them away once and for all. So every time, ladies, we confess our sins, we lift high the cross of Christ, and we glorify God. Paul then tells us that God has redeemed and forgiven us according to the riches which he's lavished on us. God doesn't forgive us because we ask him to. He didn't send his son into the world because mankind kept pleading with him to do so. Nothing, again, I've said is that salvation is given to us by God in the way of a response to a request for us. It all came from God in spite of ourselves. God always gives generously. It's his nature. It's who he is. Paul then continues, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, in the New Testament, mystery doesn't mean some kind of a mystic secret that's revealed only to a few very special people who may pay a lot of money for it. And it's deliberately guarded from everyone else, but rather it's something that the natural man is incapable of discovering. Because the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. Uh, saving truth 
is no longer a mystery to the Christian because God's opened our eyes to understand. Well, he then continues with a view to the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. And Paul is saying that in God's sovereign will, all human history shall be consummated in Christ. Everything that exists in heaven or earth shall find its perfection and fulfillment in him. This has been God's ultimate purpose since before the foundation of the world. Verse 11 then says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. And in the Greek, the verb obtained is a passive verb, and it can be translated two different ways, giving two different meanings. And the first is, as I read it, in him we've obtained an inheritance, which means we're in the will. The Apostle Peter said the same thing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled. It's reserved in heaven for you. But the other way that this verse could be read is in whom we were made an inheritance. And this would mean that those of us who are believers are Christ's inheritance because he bought us with his blood. We are the love gift of the Father to Jesus. God granted to the Son the inheritance of the church as a reward for his faithfulness and victory at the cross. So he inherits us, and we inherit him. I think we got the best end of the deal. <laughs> he continues, having predestined according to his purpose. So just as we're predestined to adoption as sons, we're also predestined to receive or be an inheritance. And Paul tells us why. It's because God works all things after the counsel of his will. And this is Paul's way of saying that God is responsible not just for the conception and coming up with this idea, but he's responsible for carrying everything out. He's the one who works out what he's predestined and predetermined. Why does he do this? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. God does all things for his glory and to display his unrivaled magnificence to the universe. Now, when Paul uses the word we, in this verse, he means the Jews, because the first believers in Christ were Jewish. You know, the expectation of a coming deliverer, that was distinctive to the Jews. No other people group had that. The Gentiles were totally on the outside. They had no hope. They were without God in the world. But look what he says in verse 14. In him, you also, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. Well, who's the you he's talking about? He's talking about Gentile believers. The Gentiles believed the same gospel. Well, what is the result of their faith? You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who's given as a pledge of our inheritance. So now we're introduced to the Holy Spirit himself and his role in all of these glorious blessings. God the Father chose us and planned our salvation. Jesus Christ, God the Son, earned our salvation by redeeming us from our sin. And the Holy Spirit is God's pledge to us that guarantees our salvation and inheritance. Well, what does it mean to be sealed? Well, seals were used to make something secure. They served to guarantee what was in a container was really authentic. Uh, it indicated ownership. They had a number of different meanings, but really all of these could apply. So the gift of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of promise, guarantees the inheritance. It authenticates us as genuine. And it symbolizes a finished transaction. So when God gave you the Holy Spirit, when you believed, he gave you all the, uh, 
guarantee you're ever going to need. Every promise in Him is yes. So there's no need to seek a second experience of the Spirit because God got it right the first time. He gave you everything there was to give you when He saved you and sealed you. Why does God do this? Look at the end of verse 14, to the praise of His glory. Over and over throughout this passage, Paul tells us God's motivation in all that He does is to bring glory and praise to Himself. All right, well, I'm out of breath now. We have now finished Paul's 202-word doxology of praise to God for everything he's done for us. And I have given you a drink with a fire hose this morning. I'm telling you. He's told us about election, how God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world. He's shared how Jesus bought our redemption and freedom with his blood. And he's reminded us of our inheritance and how the Holy Spirit has guaranteed everything by sealing us. He then begins to pray for his readers. He lets them know what he prays for them. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Well, after elaborating blessing after blessing that believers in Christ receive because of God's lavish grace, Paul then prays that the Gentile readers of his letter would come to understand their resources in Christ so that they could live in his power to the praise of the glory of God's grace. I pray that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The word for wisdom is Sophia, which means the ability to apply knowledge of God's will to all of life's situations. It's not just head knowledge, but knowledge that's sifted down into the heart, and it affects how you make decisions, you make the right choices, and follow the best course of action. And not only does Paul desire for them to have wisdom, but he also prays they'll have revelation in the true knowledge of the Lord. And the word for revelation means the unveiling of something hidden. So it deals with God imparting knowledge to us or God removing the cover and exposing that which wasn't visible before. And he's asking God to impart knowledge of spiritual things so they'll be wise, they'll apply those things in their lives because you cannot live out in your life what you don't know or understand. And then he prays, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. He reminds them that God is the source of spiritual illumination. He is the one who opens blind eyes to spiritual reality. And Paul will remind his readers in chapter 4 that they used to be darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. You know, we never get to the point in our Christian lives where we do not need to have the eyes of our heart enlightened by God's Spirit. What does Paul want them to know? He wants them to see three vital things. The hope of his calling, the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints and the surpassing greatness, greatness of his power toward us who believe. And the first thing that Paul prays for them is that they will know what is the hope of his calling. Well, what does he mean by hope? You know, Christian hope is different than secular hope. It is not wishful thinking that things are going to turn out right, but it's rock-solid assurance that what God has promised will surely come to pass. It's being dead certain that what God said he's going to do because it's true. What has God promised? He's promised believers that we will experience the fullness of redemption. Someday our bodies will be redeemed. We, we, we're saved from the power of sin, the penalty of sin, and someday sin's presence is going to be gone altogether 
Hallelujah. That's worth a happy dance. The second thing he prayed was that they would know what are the riches of his glory and his inheritance in the saints. Now remember how we looked at verse 11 um, in, in two different ways. Because we belong to Christ, we are rich, and we will inherit everything he has promised. But believers are Christ's inheritance as well. So Jesus, what he's saying is that Jesus' inheritance isn't just Jewish people, but there's Gentiles as well. And that God would include Gentiles to be part of his inheritance would have been an absolutely staggering concept in that culture. And Paul is going to spend a lot of time in chapter 2 and chapter 3 talking about how these two groups, who were very different, are now all one. Well, the third thing Paul wants them to know is what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Well, how surpassing is God's power? It is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. When Paul mentions God's power, he doesn't mention the creation of the universe. Now scientists estimate that the universe has a diameter, diameter, not circumference, of 46.5 billion light years. Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. So to go from one side of the universe to the other, would take an amount of time that is absolutely inconceivable to us. We can't begin to comprehend. But Paul wants them to understand that God's power has been demonstrated in a way that's even greater than creation, as great and awesome as that is. And it was when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Death is the last enemy, and God has power over death. Make no mistake, the greatest display of God's power that the world has ever seen was when he raised Jesus from the dead. There is no power that can withstand him. There is no might or influence that can match him. There is no possible antagonist that can equal him. The mightiest foes, the devil, death, and hell have already been vanquished, and the resurrection of Christ is proof of it, Mark Lloyd-Jones. He seated him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is body and the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, so let's talk about application. How does this apply to us? Well, in at least a million ways, but we don't have time. But I want you to think ahead, because most of you are very familiar with Ephesians. I want you to think ahead to chapter 6, where Paul tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. God's arch enemy, Satan, attacks us over and over and over again on the very points of truth that Paul has been teaching. And I'm going to tell you what they are, because I get attacked. I got attacked all summer long on these points exactly because I had to teach this lesson. God used this study to strengthen me to learn how to withstand those attacks. So the first thing he causes you to question is that God the child father chose you, because you could be so horrible that God would choose anybody but you. He causes you to question that Jesus' death on the cross was sufficient to pay for your sins. And God causes you to question that you are sealed forever by the Holy Spirit, that you're saved forever once he saves you, and that your body will be raised from the dead. Now I know that you all have had those thoughts. They're very common. And so what I'm telling you is those lying thoughts that come from the pit of hell can be taken captive and destroyed once and for all because of what 
we've studied in Ephesians chapter 1. Ladies, those are the treasures that we need to uncrate and apply in our lives. We don't need to leave them in the storehouse. They need to be going through our mind constantly. Let's pray. Father, wow, thank you for Ephesians chapter 1. I think we could spend a lifetime studying it. We can only begin the glimpse. I pray that you would enlighten our hearts and our minds. I pray you show us how to apply this. I pray that we take the lives captive and destroy them with the truth of your word uh, as we're attacked by the enemy. I, I pray that you, we can know and understand how you value and treasure us and that we can rejoice in that. I, I pray that certain of their salvation, Lord, that you would 